0: The state of the industry, as I said, is still very nascent in these terms. Now, when it comes to the enterprise and it comes to products and and the practical elements of adopting AI in business, you don't need to solve AGI in order for AI to be valuable for companies. Uh, You don't need that level of capability to, for example, figure out automatically whether or not to approve or deny alone. So there are so many things that you can apply this technology to today. And I feel that organizations that take uh, a lead in doing that, taking the technology as it exists today and simply uh, creating this internal organizational structure that enables them to apply this technology at scale, that they will be uh, the winners of this round. Uh, And that really is, I think, the important message to get across.
1: Data, artificial intelligence, the metaverse, crypto and Web3, and quantum computing are just a few of the technology innovations that are changing the way we live, work, and experience the universe. I am your host, Ganesh Padmanabhan, and this is Stories in AI, a podcast where we explore the various facets of technologies like AI, its impact on individuals, organizations, and the society. You will hear from a variety of experts and practitioners, their personal stories, their best practices, and advice to put technology to work. I hope you enjoy this engaging conversations. Now, before we begin, a note about our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by Experian, whom you may know as the Consumer Credit Bureau, but they are at heart a data company. When you're buying a car or home, sending your kids to college, or borrowing to grow your business, Experian is most likely helping you behind the scenes. They unlock the power of data to make better decisions, get access to financial services, and to prevent crime, unlocking a whole world of opportunities for individuals and organizations. Find out more at Experian.com. This conversation is with my good friend Amir Hussein, and we discussed his extensive knowledge and experience in the field of AI. We dive deep into topics like the evolution of machine learning, AI systems used in national security and defense, and how artificial intelligence can be used to mediate problems like global conflicts and climate change. Amir Hussein is an experienced entrepreneur who's founded and served as CEO of two groundbreaking AI companies. Spark Cognition and SkyGrid. Amir has been recognized as Austin's Top Entrepreneur of the Year and was awarded the Austin Under 40 Technology and Science Award. He's authored two books, The Sentient Machine and Hyperwar, which gives very detailed insights into the real world implications of AI. Amir, welcome to Stories in AI. How are you today?
0: Doing very well, Ganesh. Thank you so much for the invitation. Good to see you again.
1: Good, great to see you. And I know you've been like running a very tight schedule. So really, really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, Why don't we kick us off with uh, your story, your personal story? I mean, you are just an amazing individual. You have so much accomplishments. Tell us your background story.
0: Well, um, I'll give you the short version here. Um, but, you know, I, uh, I was born in Lahore, Pakistan, and uh, since a very young age, I've been into uh, computing and software. Um, as I've written in uh, my book, The Sentient Machine, you know, I came across a Commodore 64 at the age of four, and I saw um, the hangman game being played on this computer. And it was completely mind-blowing to me that you could have a device that could alter Uh, what was going on on the TV, because up until that point in time, it was sort of this idea of the TV was not fungible. Nothing would change. It would just be programming, you know, delivered from the airwaves, and that's what you would see. But to be able to sort of directly manipulate that and then thinking about the potential of what that means, um, my mind immediately went to, you know, this is a mechanism to create worlds. You can build your own anything you want because you can control what you see on the screen, and sort of my imagination took flight from there. And I, one of the, I think, the big um, blessings uh, of which there are many. I'm, uh, I am a blessed, very lucky person. But in uh, in this regard, one of the blessings was that I've really never wanted to do anything else. I knew at that point that this is what I wanted to apply my um, abilities and my time to, and this is how I would impact the world. So or at least I would try. Uh, so that's been sort of the underlying uh, theme, uh, the overarching trend of my life. Um, long story short, you know, I, was, I went to school in Lahore. And by the time I got to the eighth grade, I was uh, pretty much quite fed up. And uh, I convinced my parents and my principal, uh, who was a wonderful person, to allow me to leave. And, and I took my um, O-levels and A-levels privately which is the British, you know, system uh, high school plus one year up until the first year of college. Uh, And so I joined college uh, in Lahore pursuing a computer science degree at the age of 15. Uh, I graduated when I was 17 and a half. And then I'd been looking at, I'd I'd published a couple of papers by that time in AI, uh, IEEE Systems Man and Cybernetics. And I was looking to... uh, join a research group that I was very motivated by, that I just loved the work they were doing. And that research group happened to be at UT Austin at the computer science department. So I applied to UT, I got in, I made a beeline for the distributed multimedia computation lab, which was this research group. Uh, I got in and uh, I was working towards my PhD, dropped out of the PhD, started a few companies and uh, here I am some years later.
1: That's amazing. What an amazing story. I mean, you've seen the entire evolution of the industry and you know, in, a, in a large amount, you've been part of shaping that industry as it evolves to and where AI is today, right? It's it's you know, when you originally started to expert systems, to symbolic logic, to now more data-driven machine learning, combination of all those different approaches, to people asking what is AI to now saying, how do I use AI to impact the business or the life? And so... Give, give, give me your perspective of the market today. How has the evolution of AI been since you got into the journey?
0: Very early days. Uh, you know, I think, look, you know, you've got to have some perspective here as to what we're trying to do. People that are pursuing artificial intelligence in its pure form are looking to replicate, you know, human level or beyond human level capabilities in specific areas and eventually across all areas as a, as a general capability. That's a huge goal. I mean, it took evolution uh, you know, on this planet four plus billion years to get to where we are. And uh, we're trying to do it uh, in a generation or two. So, you know, yeah. when people say, you know, you, you promised me this level of capability 10 years ago and it's still not there. I, it's OK. You know, 10 years here or there on those types of timescales are not very important. But directionally, uh, are we adding more capability within these narrow areas? Yes. There is a school of thought that says that the path that we're on with deep learning, as an example, uh, might not yield general purpose intelligence. Jeff Hinton actually disagrees. And he uh, recently put out uh, a piece, an article where he said, look, this might be uh, everything we need. Uh, My view is... uh, you know, a while, I'm very interested in the theoretical developments and I have, you know, uh, contributed to some of those as well. But my view is that the way this gets done is by building it and by learning from building. And so that's really been my focus. The state of the industry, as I said, is still very nascent in these terms. Now, when it comes to the enterprise and it comes to products and, and the practical elements of adopting AI in business, You don't need to solve AGI in order for AI to be valuable for companies. Uh, You don't need that level of capability to, for example, figure out automatically whether or not to approve or deny a loan. So there are so many things that you can apply this technology to today. And I feel that organizations that take uh, a lead in doing that, taking the technology as it exists today and simply uh, Creating this internal organizational structure that enables them to apply this technology at scale, that they will be uh, the winners of this round, uh, and that really is, I think, the important message to get across.
1: Oh, that's a that's a very fair point. In fact, I think it's like saying um, like, and and you actually started off saying this, and I don't know whether you in in fact you were hinting on it. I don't know whether you actually meant it, but. If you really look at the evolution, you know, the the, the 13 and a half billion years of the universe and four and a half billion years of the earth, and, you know, humanity is what, 250,000 years. And, you know, we're still a small spec. If you really take a look at this and say technology evolution to create intelligent systems, right, as an approach. But instead of going the academic route, what you're saying is taking a very pragmatic, practical approach saying, I have a bag of tools, a bag of technologies, and I have a bag of problems. Can I apply the right problems for the right, with the right tools to the right problems and solve it and make a difference to the industry? You know, when you started Spark Cognition, Amir, um, you you chose the, the the hard industries, the 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 industrial uh, environments, the defense, you know, aviation, aeronautics, and you know, typically people will look at those industries and say they're laggards, they're so far behind, they're the last to adopt. What have you seen? What did what was your lessons and learnings there when you went into that industry? And why did you choose that industry, those set of industries?
0: You know, I think uh, entrepreneurship is one of the most difficult things you can willfully, willingly do. Uh, you choose to be an entrepreneur and it tests you in every way, uh, personally, professionally, all your relationships, monetarily, uh, psychologically, uh, you know, any any way you look at it. So, what keeps you going is some faith, some belief, uh, some like to call it passion. Uh, if you if you try to be an entrepreneur in an area and you are disingenuous to what motivates you, then you won't go very far because you just can't keep uh, operating at that level with that kind of hardship and difficulty facing you every day. Uh, so, what what. All that says is that I certainly wasn't going to pursue an area that I didn't was I what, that I wasn't particularly excited by or that I didn't really believe in the cause. Um, there are practical applications of AI, for example, in customizing and tuning uh, marketing messages. It's very viable. It makes a lot of money. There's a large number of companies pursuing that. That's not my personal passion. And so my personal passion is how the world works, the $100 trillion worth of infrastructure that runs the world, uh, that uh, produces everything that we consume, that allows us uh, the ability to rapidly transport our our freight and ourselves from one place to another, that keeps us safe, that produces the electricity, that warms our homes, uh, that is basically what makes the world go round. And there's $100 trillion worth of that stuff, and it's being... Um, it's seeing a lot of pressure from four key areas, one of which is climate change. You know, we um, are undeniably in a period where man-made climate change has uh, essentially become the defining problem to tackle this century and beyond. And in that context, this infrastructure still needs to run. You can't replace $100 trillion worth of stuff overnight but we do expect it to run with a with a minimal uh, carbon footprint how do we do that uh, if we're not going to rip and replace it how do we minimize emissions so how do we deal with this relationship of the environmental you know benefits that we want to drive and the reality of the infrastructure that's just one pressure the other is you know geopolitics right now uh, if you look around, you'll find some cyber attack against uh, the colonial pipeline or some shipping line or, you know, a power yep. plant. It's, it's daily fare. It happens every day. How do you keep this infrastructure secure in the coming days? Uh, then we're losing people with certain skill sets. Uh, pilots that are joining the U.S. commercial fleet on average don't have as much experience as they once did. Uh, people that are maintaining our electric utilities and grid industries don't have as much experience coming in now. And many of our best maintainers are past retirement age. So how do you bridge these knowledge gaps? Um, How do you, as an infrastructure operator, deliver the type of growth that the market uh, uh, has become used to? And unless you deliver that growth, you don't get multiples, you don't have a currency of any value, and you are forever trying to just keep up as opposed to building a healthy business. So these are four key pressures uh, on infrastructure, and I think all of them can be alleviated by uh, careful application of artificial intelligence. In the next 15 to 20 years, by the way, we're going to collectively invest in another $100 trillion worth of infrastructure. So why am I excited about this? Why did I choose the hard problems? Because in many ways, they're the only problems that matter. Uh, these are the problems that define how people are fed and how efficient it is for people to move from place a to place b for uh, mobility to to be able to do jobs that make them more successful uh, to be able to do all of this while making the environment uh, um, cleaner and while living in you know more sustainable conditions this is all the stuff that matters the the rest of it is is at the periphery
1: that's fair. Now, it's a very, very beautifully said, you know, it's the you chose the chose that those set of industries, especially infrastructure, securing infrastructure, making, you know, the 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 generational transition easy on the infrastructure so that we're able to keep it sustainable and then limiting the impact of the environment. Mm-hmm. But that's also not the industry set of industries that usually are tech first or tech heavy, if you will. Right. So what was the other side of this? What did you learn when you actually worked with them? Were they too unprepared? Did you have to do a lot of heavy lifting? How was that experience?
0: It's difficult. No question. Um, When you look at the nature of an infrastructure company, you tend to be dealing with companies that are a very old, right? Because if you think about, you know, car companies in the US, they've been around for a long time you think about many aviation and defense companies in the US they've been around for decades right and yep. uh, if you look at utilities um, same uh, same case uh, for them so you know these are all companies that are very old very entrenched um and in in that kind of an environment uh, people that are operating there most of them kind of tend to know what they need to do in order to succeed and survive and therefore asking for some drastic internal change is just more difficult number one number two um, you're essentially coming to them as not a domain expert in their area but as somebody that's bringing the new technology to apply to their domain and you're yeah. asking them to look at things differently right and there's that healthy kind of uh, you know skepticism, which which says, Well, who are you? Who are you to tell me what to do? I've been around running this company for a hundred years and uh, you know we've survived through thick and thin and, and this new technology, why why would it be impactful and why should we pay attention? So there are all those types of reasons. Um, and then of course, within these companies, they're also they tend to be large. They're old and they're also large which means that there's a lot of people and a lot of processes and a lot of layers and a lot of collective buy-in and all of this to achieve before you can do something meaningful. So both those things in, in concert mean that you know engagement with these companies is difficult and it can be slow. What can change the game is if you're able to develop relationships with leaders who have seen the future, who believe in that future, a technology-driven future, which represents great hope for their company, a transform, transformative potential for their company that uh, drives that kind of uh, ability to deliver growth while doing so responsibly, that the leaders that care about the environment and want to look at applications of AI for ESG uh, and, you know, things of that nature. And once you have... Um, those believers, the the C-level executives, generally the CEO who is, you know, moving forward with you as a partner, then other things become simpler. They don't, you can't wave a wand in a company that size uh, no matter what. But I think without having support from the top, you can't do much at all. Uh, And that to me was the challenge initially. Now I have to say over the last seven and a half, eight years, a lot of companies have looked at others who've succeeded with specific ai initiatives we have a large list of very successful ai deployments large ai deployments in oil and gas in the military in energy more broadly in you know sustainable uh, means of producing energy uh with automotive partners and so when you look at all of that it gives people confidence in aviation it gives people confidence and it become, the next one becomes easier and the one after that becomes easier. So that's really what we're all about. We're totally focused on overcoming these difficulties which we encountered in our early days through products, through repeatability, through systems that have been proven, through ROIs that have been uh, validated by our customers. And that then becomes the reason to adopt, not that this is AI or it's some other kind of technology, It's just the smart thing to do. And on a pure business level, from an ROI standpoint, from a referenceability standpoint, from a repeatability standpoint, is ready to go. And that in many ways becomes the ultimate argument for your incremental customers to continue the adoption wave.
1: Awesome, Amir. And I think, you know, to to summarize, and it's not the challenges within these uh, more legacy or older industries Aren't necessarily super unique, but they're just bigger because you know it's still the challenge around you know making sure domain expertise, change management at scale, managing the complexity, uh, the, and it, it all comes back to how do you build the relationships, demonstrate that you're credible, solve problems for them, and then incrementally earning their trust to do more, right? So, um, and it's a, it's the same um, challenges. One thing you know in that same regard, like you touched upon defense, and you know. Uh, the work that you, you do a lot of work. You have a mm-hmm. Spark Cognition defense systems at a subsidiary a company as well. Um, what is the future of, and I want to touch upon, you've done a lot of work here. You've written a lot of papers on this stuff too, but what's the future of natu- national security in an age of AI, in the age of machines?
0: Well, I think, you know, uh, just to make it very brief, uh, I'll say three things. Number one, you uh, Yes, indeed. General Allen, who's also on our SPAR Cognition Board, uh, you know, he and I have over many, many years done a lot of work alongside Secretary Bob Work and General Tony Thomas and Admiral Richardson and Secretary Dispro and many other partners in really examining the application of AI to the battlefield. It's an area that we uh, call hyper war. This idea that decisions can be collapsed, the time required to make decisions can be collapsed to the point where humans will find it very difficult to keep up and ultimately won't be able to keep up with with them. And then all of the operational, tactical, and strategic implications of that transition occurring. That's a very big subject, obviously, and there's many implications, both from you know, the, the use of kinetic weapons uh, to logistics, to uh, readiness, to training. It broadly applies across every uh, area. But uh, the second piece to think about also is the geostrategic implication of the use of artificial intelligence. Um, because one of the things that it does is that it enables middle powers to exercise um a lot more um, to express themselves, let's just say, through kinetic means and through these systems in a much more assertive way. Uh, there have been many conflicts uh, across the Middle East, as an example, in Libya, in Yemen, in uh, Syria, and yeah. most importantly, in, uh, in um, Nagorno-Karabakh, the disputed uh, territory between Azerbaijan and Armenia. And in all of these areas, uh, we've seen... More and more autonomy, more and more of the next generation systems, uh, drones using AI with machine vision, uh, even completely autonomous uh, weapon systems. And these have resulted in an advantage. So that's a statement of fact. You know, and when uh, a weapon system in the battlefield demonstrates an advantage, then, you know, the other side can't really have a philosophical discussion around that. Then the only thing to do is to match that capability. And this becomes that cycle that causes these developments to continue to grow. So, just based off of this trend, I can tell you that investments in um, autonomous technologies are being uh, doubled and trebled and, and, and you know, quadrupled all over the world. I just came back from the Dubai Air Show, which is one of the largest air shows in the world, and it has companies from all over the world. And what I came across was, uh, autonomous product after autonomous product, drone after drone, uh, sensors with integrated AI for machine vision, all of these types of things that are piece parts and components of a future hyper war scenario. So to me, it's no longer a discussion point. It's really actually happening in the way that the investments are being made. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, if your question is, what is the future of war? I think war is intrinsically linked to the human condition and until the human condition changes and the nature of man changes, the nature of humankind changes, I don't think we can expect that war, which is essentially kinetic competition, the failure of politics, whatever you want to call it, uh, that this will somehow disappear. And if it is not going to disappear, then we will continue to apply our most advanced technologies and capabilities to the conduct of war. And today, our most advanced technologies are AI and war technologies. And we're already now seeing instances of that, un, you know, uh, unfolding in small-scale conflicts. Now, there's a lot of uh, uh, experts that are looking at, uh, you know, the Ukraine-Russia situation. And if that were to take, a, a, you know, if that were to become a shooting war, I hope it doesn't. But, you know, that's another area where it's almost certain. That autonomy will be used in serious ways. So yes, this is unfortunately the trend, and uh, it's not very different to through history. Whenever we've developed an advanced technology, we've applied it to war. It's sort of the the common thread that runs through uh, the, the history of mankind.
1: You know, uh, no, it's it's very well put. I think um, one of the challenges, like, and I had someone from North of Grumman also on the show earlier. And one of the big challenges, even the DOD is also thinking about the war is no longer going to be in an international frontier in a desert anymore. It's that pipeline that's going to blow up. It's that you know uh, um, the connectivity that's going to be cut out. It's the power outage that's going to hit the hospital systems. It's coming to the mainland. It's not just at the frontiers, right? And and the whole approach of using technology beyond just weaponry it becomes an important element of national security, right? Definitely, Um, uh, there are so many uh, areas in which systems
0: like these can impact a society. As you mentioned, uh, all the examples you gave are essentially cyber examples. You know, uh, what we were talking about earlier, protecting infrastructure against cyber attack, um, taking out your water supply, your energy systems, and so on. And then beyond that, in the information sphere, being able to... Uh, use information operations aided by AI to create um, actual conflict within a society. I mean, there are documented cases of this in prior election campaigns where people sitting in a foreign country have targeted two opposing groups on Facebook and caused physical altercations, arranged events, um, you know, events that would otherwise not have even come to pass, but arranged those events, caused two people that they predicted would come to blows, and they did come to blows, and and remotely triggered this type of unrest within the U.S. These are again uh, well documented. So my point is, you know, the, the the way in which this kind of advanced technology can impact uh, a society, yes, is is varied, and it's not just the bombs and the missiles. It's also the cyber attacks. It's also the uh, the knowledge based information warfare, uh, AI based information warfare, that's a threat.
1: You know, one of the um, all the hype around or all the immediate momentum around the metaverse and, um, uh, you know, alternate universes in the metaverse, kind of give me you know, one of the things one of the interesting use cases would be war right? In like gamification of wars in a metaverse. So people don't get hurt. Now, it could lead to, other, lead to other consequences and getting physically hurt may not be the worst thing, right? But I always think of that as like, maybe imagine like, you know, America wants to go to war with China. They basically get on a metaverse and play Go. <laughs> you know, at the end of it, depending on how the scorecard looks, you can actually affect the economic policies and stuff. Nobody gets hurt. But I, you know, that's to assume that getting hurt is the worst thing that could happen physically, right? But it's probably not, in, in scenarios yeah. of war.
0: Yeah, I mean, um, you know, that's a that's a very interesting thought experiment. Of course, um, you know, the idea behind war, of course, is to bend the other to your will. Uh, if you can't do it by talking, if you can't do it through diplomacy, if you can't do it through politics, then you do it through physical means, and that fundamental nature of war does not change uh in the context of the metaverse it would be lovely if we could just have a you know call of duty confrontation between two countries nobody dies there's no physical damage and then both countries agree that that's the rule you know anybody that wins they just win in the real world but sadly in the real world they still possess capability and that capability will still express itself because as long as the goal that they have is uh sufficient and still paramount, they'll keep going up until when they can't go anymore. And that's really what you've seen with war. So I think, uh, you know, maybe in the future when most of the resources that are of interest are in the metaverse, then there will be wars within the metaverse too. Uh, What are those resources? And that gets us into cryptography and the blockchain and uh, virtual assets of high value residing only within this new domain of the metaverse. Uh, you know, blockchain type assets. So, yeah, I mean, I can see that type of a future, but I think physical war is still around for uh, you know a long, long time
1: for our for our uh, timeline for sure. Right? No, no doubt. You know, thank you, thank you for exploring that a little bit with me. Um, one of the things that uh, the view of AI itself is pretty polarized, right? I mean, there is. Uh, you know, everything from the Hollywood nar- driven narratives and Skynets and everything, right? And you talked about in your sentient machine book um, around how humans and humankind can thrive in that age of machines, right? Can you explore that a little bit for me, sure. for the audience?
0: So one of the core ideas behind the sentient machine was this exploration of what happens when machines can do all your jobs. Let's assume that we had AGI and therefore these machines are now able to do everything that a human being is able to do in terms of earning money and doing a job. And in that case, are we useless? Are we as human beings useless? And of course, what does useless mean? Because useless is in some context, right? So, so far we've defined our use as our ability to earn a living, provide for our families, um, you know, keep our families together, keep our families safe. And that's sort of been what, what we've, how we've defined use. But if all of that is being done for you, then what is your purpose? And so the question shifts from use to purpose. So what is your purpose? Now, there is no one definitive answer to this because uh, really Art. the answer is everybody has to find their own purpose. But the, the direction that I took in the sentient machine was to say that, look, uh, for all we know, the human brain is the ultimate creation of the universe and its cognitive capacity is unparalleled. And we have no other evidence of anywhere in the universe of anything this marvelous and miraculous existing. Something that can exist inside a small human head and can attempt to understand the secrets of this vast universe. There is no such thing in existence. So if this is our ultimate quality, it's not that we run the fastest, there are animals that outrun us. It's not that we're the strongest, there are animals that are stronger than us. It's not that we're the biggest, but we are the most intelligent. So that's the singular capability. Could our purpose be tied to the to the use of that singular capability, the mind. And what would that purpose be? That purpose might be that the universe is, yes, physical space. And yes, the universe is time. But the universe is also another thing. The universe is an idea-verse. The universe is a collection of an infinite number of undiscovered ideas. Very practical ideas, very esoteric ideas, ideas that make us... uh, Uh, see some insight that leads to Maxwell's equations, ideas that make us see some uh, dream that results in the most beautiful poem ever written, you know, ideas of every kind. And uh, the mind of a human is in some sense a surfer uh, amidst ideascape. We're going and we're uncovering and finding these ideas. And the purpose of our most high faculty are cognitive faculty, is to uncover these ideas. So that perhaps might reflect the role of humankind even in a post-AI era. Because you would say, well, how does that work? Because wouldn't AIs be outperforming humans and thinking a million times or a billion times faster than a human brain? It turns out that when you are talking about an infinite landscape of ideas, speed becomes irrelevant by definition. No matter what the speed of an AI, no matter what the speed of a computer, it will take exactly as much time as your human brain will in uncovering all ideas, which means infinite time. It will never uncover all those ideas. So really, if you now imagine this landscape of ideas laid out in front of you, what matters more than speed is where you are in this landscape, where you are instantiated in this landscape. Because around that is where you explore And and a way to express this idea of being instantiated in that landscape is perspective. It's not about how fast you think. It's about what perspective you bring to this purpose of discovering knowledge and discovering ideas. And that holds, even in an age of AI, even in an age of quantum computers and computers that are faster than we've ever dreamt of before, and even in an age of computronium, all of of this, you know, the the validity of perspective and the unique ability to uncover ideas simply because you are different. You think that way. You are in a different part of idea space. All that holds. That, to me, is tied to human purpose.
1: You know, that's that's quite amazing what you just laid out. I mean, the more pragmatist and me also, you know, technically, if you think about it, you can solve a bounded problem with better machines and better infrastructure. But if it's an unbounded problem, like you said, it's an ever-expanding sea of ideas, the machines are not going to be any better or or, or uh, more intelligent than the human brain to uncover it. So that's one thing. Um, and then the second thing, the idea of perspective, like you talked about, I think it's such, such a core thing. And it kind of can kind of tie it back to the the fact that we are aware of our presence and we have the availability and the understanding of the faculty that, you know, there is a vantage point and that this is me, right? So um, it's quite beautiful, but, you know, I I have to, I must confess, I haven't read Sentient Machine fully, but uh, I'm going to now, now with that intro, I'm going to go back and and dig in a little bit more uh, on that. So thanks, Amir. So one, uh, coming back to, organizations and practical AI in applications that we're having, right? Trust and ethics in AI is a huge topic now. Responsible AI, I mean, can can you trust the machines to actually make decisions for you versus not? So the flip side of it, organizations are also thinking, how do I govern this? I mean, there is the technical governance capabilities, like your MLOps platforms and so forth that you need or practices that you need. But beyond that, there is something more deeper, something more holistic that you need to govern AI systems or semi-automated or fully automated systems, right? What have you seen? What What is your perspective on it? What have you seen that's working within organizations and how are they governing AI? Or do we need to worry about governing AI?
0: Well, you know, I uh, this might be a little controversial. I think at the heart of it, uh, the ethics issues... With AI are not really a technology question. Ethics, by definition, is something that really applies to humans and human society. And the context in which ethics apply to technology is how humans use that technology. What's different with AI is that there's this notion that AI is just off on its own, doing its own thing, and therefore, what are the ethics of AI independently? But really, who built that AI? Who trained that AI? What information was provided to that AI in order to facilitate its training. And all of those were human actions. So ultimately with where we are right now, uh, the ethics of AI is no different to the ethics of the application of technology by humans. Uh, The unique problems that we're encountering in the space come from, on the one hand, things like biases in data. Right. So neural networks or classification algorithms that are trained might be misbalanced and they might have more of, uh, you know, one example of an ethnicity and less of another. And therefore, when you when you provide an image of an ethnicity that that algorithm hasn't seen enough training images for, it might not recognize them. It might give them a bad experience. It might make it twice or thrice uh, uh, as tedious to deal with that AI-enabled flow, and is that fair? You know, If you're a certain color, you can just breeze by. If you're a different color, then it's inconvenient for you. That's not fair, obviously. Uh, objectively, it's not fair. Yep. But we know why that happens, and we know that that issue is around data, um, uh, training data, and the biases in that data. And of course, I've given you a very simple instance of this. There are many, many sure. examples of data bias that can cause problems. Another issue is what should we do with AI? So you were talking about, you know, um, war earlier. For example, should an AI system be able to kill without having the human at the very end saying, go ahead and fire that individual bullet? Okay. Well, the answer to that question is that today that's not the case. There are autonomous systems that can take out targets uh, once they've been enabled. And they're enabled within some constraints, like in this area, or, you know, uh, within this target space, or for this amount of time, you are enabled, and you can now take out targets. So that was the human decision. If you think about it, that's not very difficult to you pulling the lanyard or an artillery piece, because when you fire an artillery shell, you don't know exactly what it's going to do. You know, you know that you have qualified a certain target area, but there's variability in this. And even today we have collateral damage. Where does that come from? Collateral damage by definition is uh, damage caused by a person initiating a kinetic action towards a target, and that damage is unintended. But coming away from war, now think about it in context of, uh, can you use AI algorithms to watch your workforce? And then rank your workforce by efficiency. How many boxes did they pick up? How much volume did they move? How many boxes did they load up into a truck? And then rank them and then say, OK, these are the most efficient 95. These are the least efficient five. And I don't really need to talk to anybody. I don't need to interview them and figure out what their family situation is or whether they're you know, doing well or not. The algorithm ranks them consistently as the bottom 5% performers, and the algorithm can generate an email firing them, and then also automatically send a message cutting off their paychecks, uh, and uh, it's all a completely automatic process. Now, you and I know that this is not fiction. It's already been done. The question is, is this the type of thing that society deems ethical? I'm not one to say that it is or it is not. I'm simply saying that the issue of ethics is less about the technology and more about the people who knowingly and willfully apply technology to achieve a certain end, and so the the ethics that must be enforced must be enforced at the level of the human or the human organization that's pushing for such
1: uh, systems. No, no, I, I completely, completely um, agree with you personally on this note because. One of the things that people use AI and you know, or automated systems or any piece of technology, as a facade to absolve the responsibility they have in the process, right? Which is something that we are seeing everywhere. I mean, that's why you are having this kind of. I didn't know this was happening. Well, you built the system with a particular parameter. You're having to have to take responsibility for the actions that comes out of that system, right? And that's one. On the technical side, you're exactly right. I mean, yes, there are still technical problems that you need to encounter: understanding data, training data sets, bias, overfitting, you know, explainability with deep neural networks. How do I understand what's happening within the model? But those are the 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 I would characterize as I know it's not technically easy, but those are the easier problems than the the yeah. broader human problems that we have to go solve. Yeah. And then the other big questions in my uh, in my mind has always been. We call ethics. There's no global code of ethics, right? Whose ethics is it? Ethics of a country like China—the way they actually implement their AI systems—is it ethics of Saudi Arabia? Is it ethics of uh, you know the United States? I mean, there is so much subjectivity in this process that the only common thread is actually align the responsibility and accountability squarely on the human beings or the human organizations be, uh, behind it. So, absolutely, absolutely agree with you. Um,
0: okay, and. Only- Yeah, the other thing, Ganesh, is that, you know, uh, there's a lot of people that take stuff like this and then go sit on their high horse. uh, That, you know, I'm talking about ethics and look at me, how ethical I am, and I'm trying to push this sort of ethics agenda. And I tell you what, uh, I'll give you an example. You know, here in the West, in the US, in our own country, uh, where there's so many things that are right, right? And there's so many things that we have, uh, that we aspire to emulate and and to spread through the world because we genuinely yeah. believe these are these are you know principles that benefit humanity. But even in our country, you know, there's this expression: "What value of a human life? Infinite value of a human life." How many time how many times have you heard people say that? Is that though how we run our society? When you go talk to an insurance company and they price out an insurance policy on a person, do you think they calculate infinite dollars as the value of, an, of a human life? The answer is no. When you go talk to um, a recruiter in a service, in a military service of a country, and you say, look, you know, people go to war, the way of war is people die. And so what is the value of that human life? Is it infinite? Obviously, not even in the context of the actions of war. Is that value of life infinite and you go through these you know these sorts of things so the point is the euphemistic i'm on my high horse the value of human life is infinite the reality is that in the real world people are making uh, choices all the time and even choices about things that are the holiest of holies life itself but this is the way the world is running even now without ai you know, insurance companies don't need AI to price out the value of a human life, but they're doing it.
1: True. Oh, very true. No, it's actually, there is there is so much rhetoric and there is so much euphemisms around this, right? But the the practical realities of the matter, it's a, it, it just, it's so subjective. I think there is no right or wrong answer. And yeah. I don't think there ever will be a right or wrong answer, right, on this particular thing. Um, bring it home for me for the audience, like most of the audience are business leaders and folks who are practitioners in the industry. What are you, What is your advice for organizations embarking or scaling their AI and data journeys in general?
0: My advice is go as fast as you can. And uh, the reason for it is that any downsides of going fast uh, are essentially trivial compared to the losses you will see if you don't get up to speed with Uh, Autonomous decision-making technology, AI. Uh, Autonomous control technology, AI. Autonomous optimization technology, AI. So go full speed ahead and adopt this technology. It's also quite clear that this is difficult to do and therefore not every company will be able to recruit the very few real AI people that are out there in the industry. Not every company will be able to build its own team. So you've got to have a partnership orientation. And as a leader, one of the things you should look for in your organization is not invented here syndrome, meaning that you know teams inside your company are telling you that we're just not, incapable of working with partners and something that's not in, invented within our four walls can't possibly have value. Because if you take that approach, there are such few AI experts really in the world that you won't be able to make progress because you won't be able to create a large enough team internally. So that's number two. The third is that while it is true in many cases that you need data in order to make progress with AI, I feel that this has now become more of an excuse. Uh, AI is much larger than machine learning, and machine learning is much larger than deep learning, and not every type of deep learning requires uh, large amounts of data. In fact, we operate in many environments where We have to predict the failure of a system that has not failed millions of times. We don't have millions of pictures of a dog and a cat to train on. We have maybe one or two examples of uh, the event that we're looking to predict. And there are techniques and and, and approaches and capabilities within our products that you can use to answer those questions so when somebody tells you oh you know let's wait on this ai thing for another 5 years until we clean up all our data we collect all our data we create the data pond the data pool the data river the da- whatever the data ocean hey, you know the all of was, you know <laughs> so uh, the data lake uh, whatever body of water you know uh, meets your fancy let us wait for another 5 years until we collect that body of uh, data water No, this is now uh, getting into excuse territory. And, you know, go back and look at what McKinsey talked about with regards to the adoption of AI, where where they say that within industries, if you don't uh, uh, participate at the leading edge, then those of your competitors that do will develop an insurmountable advantage. Why? Because they'll go build models with data that isn't perfect they'll come out with answers that aren't maybe perfect, but they'll very rapidly get improved because the way machine learning works is even the wrong answer of a model is feedback to that model to make it better. Yeah. And then yeah. every time you run that model, you're creating more data. So very rapidly, it becomes an exponential curve of data uh, gathering as well as of model tuning. And then you there's yeah. the next generation of the model. And, and so by the time you as a laggard come into the space, people that are three, four generations ahead of you are not on a linear curve. They are on an exponential curve ahead of you. And it becomes very difficult for you to ever compete and to ever catch up. So this is why I started off by saying the downsides of adopting AI now, even if it leads to 10 projects of which five work or six work, it's much better to do that than to sit back and say, I'm waiting for the lake to be, you know, full of my data fish in five years, I'll I'll move on,
1: you know. Oh, so you know, very, very well said. I think uh, to to summarize, you said like, don't wait, go as fast as you can, partner with the right people because you're not gonna be able to solve this whole thing by yourself, and then make sure that you're not using data as an excuse. And it's so true, right? Because there's always the challenge of, if you talk to data management companies who are advising these customers saying, hey, put the data structure in place, you need to get that done before you can do that. The reality is, you know, AI is a, is a compound interest problem, right? You The earlier you start, that exponential curve you talked about, you're going to learn more and it's going to compound towards better benefits in the long run. So thanks, Amir. This was great. I have one last question for you. Uh, you've had an amazing career. You've had an amazing, you're an inventor, you're an entrepreneur, um, you've started companies and startups. What advice do you have for, entrepreneurs who are embarking on this journey, in, especially in the data and AI world, if you will?
0: Well, first of all, as I said, you know this is one of the hardest things you will willingly, willfully do. Uh, and so be sure that you are genuinely passionate about what it is that you're doing. Uh, when you have to make those inevitable sacrifices, at least you have a framework of justification for why all of this is happening, and it keeps you going, right? So I think that's very, very important. The second thing is, once you know that you have that passion, commit yourself fully and entirely. Um, My advice to people that are around me always is to read a lot, okay? Because you only live one life, you only spend 24 hours a day, and even if you sleep very little, the reality is you can only experience so many hours a day. But by reading the right stuff, you are exposed in a much more compressed time frame to the experiences and the wisdom of those who have come before you. And reading broadly, I think, is extremely important. The third thing is to develop your skills. What I've found now is that there's a lot of sort of, uh, it's almost fashionable to talk about, like, in the technology profession, this person is a technical founder, this is a non-technical founder. and so, Look, everybody has to basically do one of two things. Either you're building the darn thing or you're selling it. There's no third thing to do. So if you find yourself ancillary to these two purposes, then you're just deluding yourself. You're not adding value as an entrepreneur. If you're a non-technical founder, first of all, try to be technical because you're in, a, in the technical business. You have to understand yeah. some technology in order to be credible. Why should I even buy from you if you don't understand the technology, right? As a buyer. So yeah. I'm not saying you're a you know whiz that can write device drivers uh, in assembly. But you've got to understand enough technology to be credible. And if you're a technical founder, practice your art, because this is your differentiation. Practice your art. It doesn't mean that five years, 10 years into your company, you'll still be writing shipping code. But, you know, uh, even Bill Gates up until recently, I know he still programs. I I still program. I've tried tried to program as much as possible.
1: I saw your your projects on the desktop searches that you were actually doing, search agents. Yeah.
0: (laughs) The reason for it is not because it contributes to a shipping product at Spark Cognition. But the reason is because, first of all, it connects me with my passion. And second of all, it allows me the credibility to talk to my team members, really understanding what's going on and not talking, you know, uh, in in generalities. Uh, It's it's just not the, the way I like to lead. So this is my advice to others as well, is be very connected with what you're doing. Be competent in that field yourself. And don't shirk that responsibility and say, oh, you know, I'm sort of just this. If you're not selling and if you're not building, then what the hell are you doing? You got to be really honest and ask yourself that question.
1: That's amazing. Amir, this was awesome. I have a follow-on question on that. What are you reading now? So I am
0: extremely excited. I've just broken open the first few pages of Ray Dalio's book, uh, The Changing World. Okay. Yeah, and I actually had it on pre-order. It just arrived, so I'm already uh, in the midst of it. But I'm also in parallel reading... um, if I, I hope I don't mangle the name, but uh, it's um, good economics for hard times. Uh, it's written by a Nobel laureate uh, uh, economics, um, you know, author. <laughs> a fantastic book, and I'm learning a lot. And basically, that book explores the question of assumptions around growth. Uh, you know, we've been a very sort of GDP growth-driven culture for many decades. Yep. And is that really the way to deliver uh, prosperity in an environmentally sustainable way in the future? Uh, things that have happened in the past in the West, can they be replicated elsewhere where there are developing economies going through now the same growing pains? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm learning a lot from that book. Uh, so, yeah. And the, and the one that I just finished, which I'll also recommend, these three books, I think kind of sort of thematically linked, is the 9.9%. Uh, which is also very interesting, it has a lot of U.S. specific statistics that I was not yep. familiar with. In general terms, I was, but it has a lot of detail and uh, it's worth reading. You may or may not agree with it, but that's the point of a book. It gives you something to think about.
1: Absolutely. Amir, thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for your generosity of your time and you know sharing this uh, wonderful insights and perspectives to the world. Do um, you have any questions for me? Ganesh, thank you very much for giving
0: me the opportunity. You've got a great platform and uh, I really enjoyed your questions, really enjoyed the discussion. And I look forward to engaging with your community, um, you know, as the weeks and months go by.
1: Thank you, Amir. And last, one last thing, where can the viewers and listeners find you? LinkedIn?
0: Yeah, the easiest way is actually amirhussain.com. A-M-I-R-H-U-S-A-I-N, com. And uh, of course, I have uh, Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook profiles, but really the primary uh, place is there. I have a regular Forbes column. I write quite frequently. Uh, The Sentient Machine, I would recommend uh, to everyone here. It's available on Amazon and uh, that's a good starting point.
1: Amazing. Thank you, Amir. Thanks so much for for the time and it was a blast. Thank you, Ganesh. Wonderful to see you. Take care. Cheers. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you did, I encourage you to do three things. Number one, share with your friends and family. If someone else can learn from this, get inspired and take action, they need to. Number two, subscribe so you do not miss a single episode. You can do it at your favorite podcast location or at youtube.com. Number three, let me know if you have any questions, comments or ideas for me or my guests and check out storiesinai.com to access show notes and more resources. Thank you for listening. See you next time.